so so Gallo keeps getting closer and closer to it. And as he gets up to the roadblock, he tries to go around it. And it's February and there's snow on the ground. So he's going around it, but he's slipping a little bit. And one of the troopers standing out front just jacks a shell in the shotgun and shoots two shots in the radiator and blows the radiator, radiator up in his Cadillac. So naturally, he gets out when the helicopter sees the gun battle going on or what he thinks is a gun battle. We've told him to look out for surveillance. He sees this guy get out of a car, two cars behind him with Florida tags on it. He's got a great big cowboy hat on. So the helicopter's trying to get hold of these guys saying, hey, look out, there's a guy coming up on you. And they can't get hold of everyone because they're out of the car. So he actually takes the prop wash from the helicopter, scoots the guy back in the car, and shuts the door of the car with a skid <laughs> on the helicopter. <laughs> and That's the way we so, do it in West that Virginia. Is, so, <laughs> that is next-level shit, man. <laughs> so, so they take Gallo, they drag him out of the car and stuff. And, uh, and you know, there's this whole crowd of people that are sitting watching this because they're stuck in this traffic jam. And they think that, it, that a, uh, it's like movie a movie. Show. It's like we're yeah. filming a movie here. It, we're and Tom Cruise what they jumping out of the helicopter. Yeah. Well, the, the, one of the troopers that was there said that, uh, the guy that was behind him uh, was watching all this. He goes, Oh my God. And they saw him put him in handcuffs and stuff. And he goes, Oh my God. He said, what did that guy do? And he said, he just turned around and looked at him and had big water chewing tobacco in his mouth and spit on the ground. He goes, speeding. Welcome to Game of Crimes. So... Uh, he said, well, what do you need to work with? I said, well, I need at least one other person. So he gave me a, a, a guy, uh, to work with, uh, named Ricky Brown. And he said, work with him. And he said, what else do you need? I said, I need a car that's not traceable because back in those days, all of our undercover cars, if you ran the tag, came back to an undercover name, but the owner was West Virginia state police. And, and, <laughs> well, you know, wait, if you, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> Back, back, I see, a, I see, you know, highly trained investigator. I see a flaw in the undercover scheme. Here. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you, things, no, things changed actually, a lot as I as, as I began to climb the ranks a little bit. A lot of things changed as far as the undercover guys went. But I told him, you know, and I said, look, if you if you check the inspection sticker, if you look at the little sticker on the tag, any of that, it all comes back like the inspection sticker comes back to inspection station zero one. Well, you know, that's the state police inspection station in Charleston where they inspect all of the cruisers at. So, so I said, I, I need a clean car. And he said, well, how do you do that? And I said, give me some money. I'll go out and buy one at a used car dealership here. I said, you know, I don't need a sports car. I just, so anyway, he agreed to all that. I did all that. And, uh, and, and. Oh, no, 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 no. Don't, don't bypass the car. Cause this factors into a story later. Tell us about the car you got. <laughs> well, I, I got a, a car. It's called a Cordoba. <laughs> and uh, the Chrysler Cordoba. Tell us about uh, the roof in the Chrysler Cordoba. Well, at one time it was probably pretty nice when it came off the assembly line, but after it sits in the in the weather for a while, all the glue comes off of it. And so to see out the front window, <laughs> you drive with one hand and you have to hold the, the roof off with the other. And I don't care what kind of glue you put on it. I tried tape, glue, uh, everything I could think of. But yeah, I, I guess Jeff Sandy told you that story, huh? 
But anyway, oh, yeah. uh, he was a little, more. yeah, he not only told us that story, he thought the first time he met you, you drove up in that thing. He thought he was about to get robbed. He thought he was going to be rolled out at a stadium somewhere. <laughs> I don't know if he told you or not. He said, well, how do I recognize you? I said, don't worry about it. I'll recognize you. So, yeah, he wasn't too hard yeah, to recognize. Yeah, that's exactly what he said. <laughs> <laughs> I pulled up and I said, hey, are you the Fed? He goes, uh, yeah. I said, come get in the car. So he came over, got in the car. And I remember it was hard to carry on the conversation because he was using both hands to hold up the, the headliner on the car. But, <laughs> but, but, but I, can't, the I car can also imagine somebody calling 911. Somebody calling 911. I think some guy's being robbed. The one guy's driving, the other guy's got his hands in the air, you know, in the, in the, in the vehicle. <laughs> yeah, anyway. But you know true, what? Nobody but, would ever suspect you of being a trooper because a trooper wouldn't let their car get in that condition. Oh, hell no. Oh, you know, and that's it. That's it. I, I mean, I used to do... You know, I had a baby seat in the back. I mean, I, you know, you do all that stuff that at that time you think is probably the right thing to do. But, but, uh, so but you yeah, get this, uh, you get this totally undercover car. I mean, it, uh, congrats too, because you know that these guys probably got the connections to check you out. Yeah. And they did actually one night, and I'm going to jump ahead a little bit, but one night while I'm actually inside a place that they called the taxi stand, which is where he ran all of his operations. While I'm in there, uh, one of his guys comes out and writes down my inspection sticker number and looks at the tag and, and writes down the little number on the sticker on the tab. And I know this because the only surveillance I had was Ricky Brown, who was on top of a, uh, uh, a parking building right across the river. And, you know, with telephoto lens, he could see this guy coming out. He thought the guy was putting a bomb in my car. So, you know, he's watching real close. But he said then he saw that the guy was just writing down all this information. And within uh, hours after that happened, uh, West Virginia State Police run or they have everything like any kind of license check that somebody runs on a computer goes through what's called a weapons terminal, which is audited by the West Virginia State Police. They're like the gatekeeper for this system. So we were able to monitor if my number ever showed up on a check. And within a matter of hours, both the inspection sticker, my license plate number, and the number of the little decal showed up as being ran by the Clarksburg City Police uh, on, on, you know, who, who did this belong to. And so, yeah, I mean, it, you know, all that came back was, wow, I'm really glad I did that because I was in a, I was in a pretty bad situation at that time. I was actually on the inside of the, the taxi cab stand having supper with the target. And, uh, and he's got his guys outside checking my car. So, uh, so that, that's how that investigation started. Uh, we had an informant, you know, like most things start, we had a CI and the CI, introduced me into a couple of guys that worked at the taxi stand. Uh, I got involved with them. Uh, you know, my face was showing up a lot. I, I, you know, I was doing a lot and you begin hey, to Tom, carry. Yep. What is it you were investigating? So when they brought you in, what was the target? What, what was the predicate crime or what was the case that you were investigating? What were you going after him for? Oh yeah. Good question. Because it, it just wasn't one thing. This guy was involved in, in organized crime. And as such, he was involved in contract killings. Uh, there was actually a shootout downtown uh, Clarksburg uh, with guy, guys in two separate cars. Both of them had machine guns shooting at each other, going up and down the main streets of Clarksburg at like 2 a.m. Because these guys came up from Florida to collect a debt 
And uh, when they got there, they were greeted by uh, some of the members of this organization that chased them out of town in a machine gun fight. So, so it was contract killing. <laughs> uh, cocaine was a very, very large part of it. Uh, it but also it, coal mines were involved uh, with buying up. And, and you know, if you, ha- if you have a coal mine, especially back in those days, it was difficult to make money. Uh, when you ran it legitimately, so anything illegitimately that you did, like have people in it that that weren't uh, certified to be in it, uh, use stolen mining equipment instead of paying you know top dollar for mining equipment, things like that. But that increased your your profit margin quite a bit. So it was profitable to buy up some coal mines and begin to run them like that. So so it was a variety of things. I mean there. And that's one of the reasons I think Captain Trooper called me up there was because every time he turned around and heard about, you know, breaking and entering, uh, uh, someone getting ripped off with something, uh, drugs, anything else, it kept coming back to this one name. So that's, it was basically, see if you can get, you know, on the inside of the organization and see if we can get enough information for the feds to be involved with uh, so that we can, you know, take this guy out of the picture for a while. Um, Sounds so like how, a very viable target, and probably one of the one of the main targets in that part of the state, if not the entire state of West Virginia, and probably the surrounding area as well, right? Oh, it, it was. I, I remember. I remember listening to the radio station on the morning that we made all the arrests, and I remember that it was cold. It was in February, and I remember the announcer saying, uh, "You know, the temperature outside is uh, 32 degrees, except for and he named a small town." Clarksburg, he said, where the temperature is well over 100 there right now. And he said, the only gallows that, that are left in uh, in Clarksburg right now are Ernest and Julio. So, uh, <laughs> so yeah. Well, it, it, he had a good was, sense of humor. Yeah. But so, I mean, this guy's obviously like target number one. So how long did you work that before, like you said, before it started becoming apparent, this has got to be a bigger effort. It can't just be the state police. Like you said, it's got to be the feds kind of walk us through that progression, how long it took you to work that up to get, start getting additional involvement. Okay. Well, uh, after I worked on it for a while, we knew that we couldn't take it locally. Number one, they didn't want to do it locally because, uh, we, in West Virginia, we have county prosecutors, those change. And also, uh, uh you know, it, it would have been quite a bit for a local prosecutor to take on such a large case. Plus, there were law. You know, there's a lot of federal laws that that aren't state laws. So, you know, state doesn't didn't have RICO. State didn't have CCE. Uh, so, uh, uh, so the the mindset was to try to get a good enough case that that the feds would take a look at that they would try uh, under some of the federal statutes. So, after about probably eight months, and I developed a relationship with a uh, with the assistant prosecutor uh, up in Wheeling in the Northern District at that time by the name of Bill Colabash. A great. Now great you're guy talking still. about the assistant, the uh, AUSA, the assistant U.S. attorney? Yeah, at that time. Later he became the USA, but at that time he was the assistant U.S. attorney. And so, I, you know, I, I developed a relationship with him so that he'd know who I was. And I, I kept taking him the information that I had uh, with the understanding that he not give it to anyone else. Because, you know, again, you know, I mean, you're sitting, you're sitting at the same table as this guy that just, you know, blew a guy's jaw out two weeks ago. Uh, 
because he didn't pay a drug deal. And, and, you know, I mean, I remember sitting there one night, we're eating spaghetti and he looks at me and, 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 you know, he was using a lot of Coke at the time. So, uh, you know, you don't think rationally or otherwise when you're doing that. And I remember him looking at me and saying, someone told me you were state cop and, you know, I'm sitting there and I didn't say anything. And finally he said, so what are you going to say about that? I said, uh, pardon my French. I said, you go pass the fucking meatballs or not. And uh, he, he just kind of laughed and passed me the meatballs and we continued to eat supper. So, so, you know, for, for him to have known for sure who I was, I don't think I would have lasted. I mean, I, not that I've been burnt. He would have taken me out on a strip job somewhere. And that's, you know, probably where I'd still be today. So, yeah, it was very but We would have been able to identify you though, because your recorder would have been taped recorder. to your ankle with, with state police evidence tape. You know, by then we started getting uh, some devices that were a little smaller and we couldn't buy any real good devices because DEA and FBI bought all those. So we had to buy the other devices where the batteries leaked and, and burnt holes in your skin oh, and did other geez. kind of crazy things. I, I see Steve shaking his head. He knows, you know. Uh, but, talk about the old Nagras, man. That that was terrible. Well, see, and we had to work our way up to Nagra. I mean, we worked our way up <laughs> from a RCA recorder to, to Niagara. But, but anyway, uh, uh, you know, f- for him to, to have known any of that would not have been good. So, so he promised me he would not say anything. And I, I, I kept giving him stuff so he could direct me. Okay. Now we, we, we know who these three people are now. Uh, you know, let's see if we can get some more evidence on these other people. And he kept telling me, you know, that you need to get the feds involved in this. And, and I was, Absolutely not. You know, I, I I can take this all the way through federal court myself. And so one day he called me up and he said, look, there's a guy I want you to meet. He said, just do me a favor. We're friends. Do me a favor. Go meet him. He's in Charleston. His name's Larry Minx. So he said he's with IRS. Well, I'd never worked with IRS at that point. And so I went to Charleston and I meet this guy named Larry Minx. And he says, I understand you're working on the Gallo case. And you've got some information that I think we could use uh, that we could put with mine. And he took me in this back room in, in the U.S. Attorney's office. And uh, and he's got these boxes stacked all over the place. He said, here's my case. He said, I've, I've got tax forms. I've got uh, surveillance. I've got uh, everything that you could think of. And he said, I'm going to leave you in here. Take whatever notes you can that you want to take. He said, you can't take any paper out of here. But he said, you can make any kind of notes you want. And he said, uh, if it help your case, take it. Uh, if you want to combine with us and work the case together, I'd really appreciate that. And so I sat and looked through the information and they had a lot of holes because they didn't really have any undercover work. They, you know, all their stuff was paperwork and historical type stuff. It wasn't real time stuff, but it was a lot of great information that I would have never had access to. So that's when I first met him and you know, we started working together and it just, over the years, it just grew into more and more cases and more and more work. And, uh, and it worked out very well on the, uh, on the Gallo case. One question for you. You mentioned, uh, RICO and CCE. Can you explain to our listeners what those are? Sure. Uh, RICO stands for Racketeering Influence Corrupt Organization. CCE stands for Continuing Criminal Enterprise. Uh, they're both, uh, laws, federal laws that were developed basically to go after organized crime. Uh, 
we charged Gallo initially under both of those statutes, which had never been done in the U.S. at that point. They were fairly new uh, back in that time, uh, but no one had ever charged anybody with both of those. But Larry and I and, and Jeff and uh, Sandy uh, sat down and went through all the paperwork and we thought that we had enough to do that. So we took all that to Bill Colabash, uh, the AUSA, and, and he said, you know what? He said, I'll take this to Maine Justice out of Washington, but let's say, tell us not to, let's do this. So, so that's what we did. And there's some stiff penalty. I think CCE is a life in prison. And, uh, and uh, the RICO statue, uh, great thing about the RICO is you can confiscate everything. I mean, you take everything. We, we took the cab stand in that case kind of an interesting side thing. We took the, the cab stand, it was called United Taxi, and we took it, turned it over to uh, the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office and the Marshals. They ran it for two years and went bankrupt. And uh, I remember the Clarksburg paper coming out and saying, you know, only the federal government could, to could take a viable operation like that, and two years later, uh, it go bankrupt. So, Have you ever heard but, of the U.S. Post Office and Amtrak? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, don't yeah. give me hate mail you amtrak folks but <laughs> but but for this case though but l let's let's dive in a little bit more about carl lee gallo so how long did this investigation go and who ended up being involved with you it was you it was irs who else got involved with this well eventually like when we took him down uh you know we had every we had the fbi involved and and uh we had dea involved i don't think i'd ever met a dea agent up to that point uh because DEA at that point didn't really have a large presence in the state. I think they only had two agents and they had two what were called compliance agents or the people that go around to the pharmacies, make sure the pharmacies are doing what it is that they're supposed to do. So, so they really didn't have a large presence at that time. But we arrested so many people in so many different places uh, at the end of that investigation that it was difficult, you know, not bringing in other organizations. Uh, and, and like I said, to the point where uh, Vice President Bush uh, uh, flew Marine Two down to help us uh, when we went out and did the arrest, uh, because we knew it was going to be bloody. We we knew, you know, unless we hit them fast and hit them uh, all at one time, all over the state and out of state. Uh, this went into Pennsylvania and Ohio. That unless we hit them all at once, that it was going to be bad. Because you know, these just weren't your typical people. These were people that made their living in violence and, uh, you know, stood or sat around and talked about how they would never, they would never go quietly, how they would, you know, if they took them, it was going to be over somebody's dead body. So, well, see, now you're glossing over like you did your Navy story. So we need a <laughs> few more details here. So, uh, so how long, eventually at some point you have to get with the, uh, assistant U S attorney, you know, it's got to go to, uh, you know, you take it to a grand jury, you get indictments, but how long did it take getting to that point to where, and what kind of crimes did you have, uh, documented by that point that you were going to submit to the grand jury for indictment? Uh, we had, I think we probably worked on it, um, uh, maybe two and a half years, maybe as long as three years, uh, and we had, uh, and, and I, I wish, and supposedly somebody's getting me a copy of the indictment. I used to have a couple of copies of it, but the indictment literally was uh, four inches thick. I mean, it looked like a Sears oh, Robot catalog for those people peace. that can remember yeah. those. Wow. It was. And, and I mean, it just, 
it included just about every federal crime that you could think of from from using a, a telephonic device in furtherance of a of a drug crime to to murder for hire to everything i mean it was it, when we passed them out to the press uh we just stacked them on the table and had the press come and get them uh but you know what might have been uh, easier might have been easier to list the crimes he didn't commit say except for these five crimes he did everything else well the you know, it, and like I said, I, I wish I would have had a, a copy of that because I could have read down through the crimes. But you're right. Just about every crime you could think of. I don't think that we had uh, like human trafficking in there only because I'm not sure if we had those kind of laws back in those days or not. But, yeah, just about everything you could think of is we hit on. Well, yeah, they didn't have human trafficking back then or stalking or things like that. A lot of those things came out of the 80s, you know, and 90s. But um by the time you put this case together, who, what, what federal agencies had been working regularly with you to put this case together? It was you, IRS, who else? Yeah, almost exclusively the IRS. Uh, IRS was, uh, you know, like I said, we're the, we're the ones that actually began to work together on it. And uh, what I was able to do was I was able to take my undercover operations and tailor them to what was needed uh, to shore up the federal crimes that IRS had information on, but, you know, they didn't have, you know, they didn't have tape recordings or they didn't have, uh, they had a nickname. There was a guy from Hawaii that the only thing they had was a nickname. And the only way you were going to find stuff out like that was to have somebody on the inside. So that's where I came in was I was able to to not only give them that information, but give them associates of those people so that then they could go back and begin to look at their files. And, and that's what, that's how it grew so large was because uh, the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office actually set up an office just for us to store all the stuff in, to meet, to, to store all the tapes in, because we, we had hundreds and hundreds of tapes. Uh, of course, um, you know, we had phone records, we had uh, tax records, uh and, you know, then as the grand jury started, before we actually made the arrest, we pulled some people in that we thought could give us information that would, uh, even if they went back to Gallo and told them about, it didn't look like it would be related to him. It might be related to some of the people that he worked around. But they were key points that we couldn't figure out. And, and you know, the, the federal system has the best uh, grand jury thing going. I mean, you don't hardly see that at all in state. I tried to, when I was a state prosecutor, I tried to get that rolling here in, in West Virginia, but never got it up and running. But, you know, federal grand jury is a powerful, powerful thing. I mean, they, they tell you, they can tell you, we'll go put a wiretap on them. And, and, you know, to, for a federal agent to go do that or a state agent to go do that, it takes mounds and mounds of paperwork and, and you have to try everything else uh, imaginable before you can actually go do that. But a grand jury can say, hey, go do that. We want to hear this. And so we went from having grand juries once a week or once every two weeks uh, to having grand juries uh, three, four times a day. I mean, a grand jury set up down in Elkins and they'd stay there five days a week while we fed them information. When you guys did the takedown, did they live up to their claims of, you know, not going down easy or did they... Oh, fall over and cry like a little baby and put your hands behind their well, back. 
Well, it, actually, the arrest was interesting. No one really gave us a lot of problems because, you know, we just we went in with so, so much shock and awe, you know. Uh, one of the problems we thought might be with Carl Lee because he just had so many ears everywhere. So we got down to the last couple of days right before the uh, the indictment would be unsealed. And I pulled myself out of it. So uh, so in case information did get back, you know, the case was basically over with. We were just finishing up with the grand jury. We had a, a meeting in uh, a, a place called um, Jackson's Mill, West Virginia. And it's like a camp. And, and we had hundreds and hundreds of police officers there. Uh, of course, the feds brought in people from Philadelphia and Washington and Richmond. And, and we had over 100 troopers there. We had people from all over the place. Well, I'd set up a surveillance team of a couple guys uh, on Gallo. And I said, look, we're going to know if he hears about this or not because he's going to take off. So, so we're planning everything and uh, getting ready to take everybody down. And uh, in the night before, I get a call from my guys and they say, hey, Gallo's on the move. He's headed south. Well, we knew that he had contacts and, uh, and property in Florida. And so he was headed down 79 and, and they're calling me on a bag phone. Uh, which I remember again, those, for those, love those old Motorola bag phones yeah. with the little oh, antenna yeah. that would pop up, plug them into your cigarette yep. lighter. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Sometimes they worked, sometimes they didn't. But but they Most called me on didn't. the back phone. <laughs> yeah. They, and they said, we're headed down 79. I said, if the, if he gets off of exit 57 and heads south on 119, that means he's headed to Florida because that's the fastest way to get there. And I said, if he does that, we need to take him down. We've got a warrant in our hand. We need to take him down. And I said, be very careful because there's he'll, he always travels with a couple other people, two or three cars behind him. So, so I said, you know, watch out for surveillance. And they said, okay. So I get in a van, I'm headed down that way. In the meantime, I've got a, a couple uh, of the uh, guys from the state police aviation flying a helicopter up, you know, been, they were friends forever. Uh, uh, and they, uh, one of them called me up and said, uh, you know, Hey, look, we're bringing, and there was a couple of politicians they were bringing up North for the uh, uh, press conference. And he said, uh, can I help? And I said, well, I'll call you back in just a minute. So I got a call from my guys said, hey, he's, he took the exit. He's headed south. I said, we need to take him down. So I called the, the uh, helicopter guys back. They actually sat down at a rest stop up there. And whoever it was they had with them, the politicians they had with them, they, they set off at their rest stop and said, look, <laughs> we'll, we'll come back and pick you up. And, and leaving so, a politician at a place where people take oh, a dump yeah. is a perfect place, man. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. So <laughs> that's great. <laughs> so so anyway, they're headed south, and now I'm, I'm I have to fill the story in from people because I'm about 30 minutes behind them. But my guys are telling me they're right behind Gallo, about you know quarter mile, and they come up over rise, and, and there's a place called uh, Summersville. Well, there's Summersville State Police Detachment down there that they'd got a hold of. And they couldn't tell him a lot. They said, you know, here's a, here's a guy. He's our target. He can't get past us. So according to my guys, they come up over this ridge, and there's this big, long, straight stretch, which we don't have a lot of in West Virginia. But you can see like a mile and a half ahead, and there's, there's two tractor-trailer trucks nose to nose across the highway. And behind that, there's hundreds of cars that they've blocked off. 
and there's no one, you know, between them and this roadblock. So, so Gallo keeps getting closer and closer to it. And as he gets up to the roadblock, he tries to go around it. And it's February and there's snow on the ground. So he's going around it, but he's slipping a little bit. And one of the troopers standing out front just jacks the shell in the shotgun and shoots two shots in the radiator and blows the radiator, radiator up in his Cadillac. So naturally, he gets out when the helicopter sees the gun battle going on or what he thinks is a gun battle. We've told him to look out for surveillance. He sees this guy get out of a car, two cars behind him with Florida tags on it. He's got a great big cowboy hat on. So the helicopter's trying to get hold of this guy saying, hey, look out. There's a guy coming up on you. And they can't get hold of everyone because they're out of the car. So he actually takes the prop wash from the helicopter, scoots the guy back in the car, and shuts the door of the car with a skid <laughs> on the helicopter. <laughs> and That's the way and we so do it in West that Virginia. Is, so, <laughs> that is next level shit, man. <laughs> so, so they take Gallo, they drag him out of the car and stuff. And, uh, and you know, there's this whole crowd of people that are sitting watching this because they're stuck in this traffic jam. And they think that it, that a uh, it's like movie a movie. Show. It's like we're yeah. filming a movie here. We're Tom Cruise jumping out of the helicopter. Yeah. <laughs> so so anyway, what we find out is Gallo had no idea that we were making all these arrests. He was actually headed to South Carolina to pick up some uh, some stolen well some mining equipment to take back to one of his coal mines. And that this, and that what he saw, he wasn't trying to run the roadblock. He said he thought it was a, a truck accident. And he was, he's, I was running late. I was trying to get around. And he's all of a sudden, his trooper steps out of nowhere and blows my car up. And, uh, well, God and damn we, it. When you go around a trooper that told you to stop, then you got to pay the consequences. He should have right. Well, the, the, one of the troopers that was there said that, uh, the guy that was behind him, was watching all this. He goes, Oh my God. And they saw him put him in handcuffs and stuff. And he goes, Oh my God. He said, what did that guy do? And he said, he just turned around and looked at him and had big water chewing the back in his mouth and spit on the ground. He goes speeding. And so, so the guy turns around and gets back in his car. And we go, we, we interview the guy that, that got washed back in his car and find out that he, he was just, he was a paramedic. And he thought that there had been a truck wreck, so he was getting out of his car to see if he could go help with something. So that's how the arrest started out. That was the first arrest that we had. This has got to go down in the annals of the West Virginia State Police history book. Well, you know, we... we I wouldn't uh, call them one, annals, Steve. Annals is a little bit different. Let's call them annals. Uh, we we no, go back... I don't know. It fits both. Yeah, Pucker we, factor. We, it's the annals, yeah. Oh, absolutely. So so anyway, we go back. We're taking Gallo back to the uh, Clarksburg uh, courthouse, the federal courthouse. And we call Captain Trupo and tell him that, you know, look, we've got him. And he's, oh, great. You know, I, I just I can't tell you guys, you know, how happy this makes me. And, and he says, let me ask you, is there any way that, that I can pick him up? I know you guys don't want to be on camera. And he said, there, there's camera crews all over the courthouse here. He said, can I possibly pick him up and take him in? We said, absolutely, because we were trying to figure out how we were going to do that anyway. So we meet him out on Route 50. We transfer Gallo from back of our van to uh, the back of Trupo's car. Trupo takes him to the courthouse, walks him between the press, up the steps, handcuffed into the courthouse, signs him over to the U.S. Marshals, turns back around, stands in front of the courthouse and puts his hands up and says, 
I have two things to tell you. One is we've just had the successful arrest of Carly Gallo. And the second is I'm running for sheriff of Harrison County. So, <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's how he started oh, his sheriff's campaign off. Oh, which, my which, God. Which Did he get elected? I thought was great. <laughs> Did he ever get elected? Oh yeah, yeah. He he served well, out the strength two of terms. That. And it was great. Yeah, yeah. He was, well, and he was a, a great. Shirt. And you got to imagine this. So here's this guy Gallo, who has you know notorious criminal up there for years and years, involved with organized crime, and one West Virginia trooper escorts him up the steps, puts his ass in jail, and then walks out. I, and then you got to love the name Trooper Troopo. Uh, oh a, yeah, that's a Hollywood name if you've ever heard of one. Now I think the best one though is. <laughs> I got two announcements. He's in custody. That's minor. The biggest thing is I'm running for sheriff and I need you to like very much. <laughs> yeah, oh my great God. You, you have sandbagged us so much on this interview. That's good. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the sorry. best part though, is a guy turned around going, uh, we take speeding seriously here in the state of West Virginia. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, that reminds me, I don't know if you guys ever wrote that book, read that book by Joseph Wambaugh, The Choir Boys, one of the first ones he came oh, out. Yeah, oh, sure. yeah. And yeah. he's they're at that wreck where somebody's been decapitated and people are slowing down and gawking and, you know, and, and holding up traffic. And this lady pulls up. She said, anybody get hurt? He said, well, a couple did and holds the head up of the decapitated person said, this one got shook up a little bit. <laughs> oh, Murph. <laughs> it's just uh, you got to do things. <laughs> It just morbid sense. Of, yeah, but it's true, though. Absolutely. I mean, it, yeah, that was the other one I liked, too, was the uh, lieutenant who they ended up setting up, I think, in that one with the prostitute, I think it was. Got pictures of him, I think, for blackmail. Oh, yeah. Was, yeah, yeah. 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 That's we a had, good book. Yeah, we had somebody we wanted to do that, too, as well. But um, so, Tom, let's oh. let's not. Go ahead. Steve. Yeah, I want to ask, did, did you indict any police officers out of Clarksburg? I was. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to ask. Fucking yeah, actually, that's, we did. that's such bullshit. Yep. No, I, yep. And I'm that, telling Tom, you, that, I don't know if you've, I don't know if you've heard us say this, Tom, but nobody hates a bad cop more than a good cop, and that's our motto here. That's a fact. And, and I tell you, when, when we found out that that guy ran my tag, you know, first thing I wanted to know was who ran it. You know, I, I want to personally arrest this guy, and he ended up, we ended up indicting him, and I, I think his brother, I think we indicted either two or three Clarksburg City police officers. And by the way, they had a good organization. Uh, and especially after that, they had a great organization. Now, I knew the chief very well, but, you know, you just couldn't get away. You know, it was a small, you know, relatively speaking, West Virginia was a pretty good sized town, but relatively speaking, a small town, you know, you're going to end up with people, you know, that, that can be compromised. And, and they definitely right. were. Plus, you know, it was one of those things that it just went on forever. So, well, if I don't do it, somebody else is. So, you know, I might as well get right. some bucks out of this. Uh, but yeah, what, we, to ask, what was their motivation? He paid them uh, well, returning favors. Well, what, what was their incentive? Yeah. One of them was, he was a family member. So what, that's why his motivation was. And, and the others was just pure money. I mean, they, they were getting, they were getting what to call chips, chips off of everything. You know, it's like taking a block of ice and get it a little ice pick and take a little chip off it. They were getting little chips off of everything that was going on up there. And we ended up we, the case had, we had so much evidence on everybody. I, I don't think we went to trial on anyone. I think everyone put guilty. Well, man, when you got as many tapes as you did and it's on audio and they're saying this. Hey, but let me ask you that before I forget, especially about our main guy, Carl Lee Gallo. How, how many times did you meet with Carl Lee? How much, how much evidence did you get on him? How much of your conversations did you capture? 
Yeah, I think personally with him, probably only three, maybe four times. Uh, because, you know, you know, he had his hierarchy. Unless you were a family member, you didn't have regular talks, regular sit-downs with him. In fact, usually when he came around, you didn't say anything. No one said anything until he approached you. So, you know, he was still a little worried about me. He was, he was still, at that time, you know, he was using a lot of cocaine, so very, very paranoid. Uh, you know, sometimes he'd remember who you were, sometimes he wouldn't. Uh, but where we got the bulk of our evidence was through uh, conversations with the people that worked around him that were not afraid to talk. You know, they, they, that was kind of a badge of honor for them to say, yeah, you know, Carly said this, or, or I went last night with Carly and we met this guy, met that guy. And then to be able to take that information back to the IRS and have them do the paperwork and to be able to buttress all of that, you know, conversation up with actual paperwork, you know, receipt, cash register receipts, uh, uh, you know, where they got stopped, got gas on their car, stuff like that. So, like I said, it was just that's the reason why that indictment was so thick was it literally was like a story. I mean, you just turn from page to page, just like reading a book. And here's this guy worried about you being a cop. But the, and this is what happens with drug dealers, with a lot of criminals. That greed factor is so strong. Yep. And they think they're smarter than everybody else. They're like, ah, screw it. I, you know, he can't beat me in the long run. Um, yep. but one, of the, one of the other things I want to ask you about was your asset seizures, because I saw something in the list that looked rather unique. I've never heard of this before. Did you guys seize a coal mine? Yeah, we did. Uh, That's pretty cool. Did you make it yeah. profitable or did you run this one out of business too? <laughs> no. Yeah, I'm not. I think it's probably out of business now. It was actually right behind where he lived. And we had heard that there were a number of bodies that he had buried back there. And we went back there with every modern piece of equipment that we could think of. And, and we never really found that. So, we, we, you know, that was a rumor that had floated around. We found some strange things. We found, like a set of handcuffs back there. Uh, you know, we, we found uh, shell casings. Uh, I forget, you know, just a lot of things that were really strange to find back there. Uh, but we never did dig that up. But yeah, you're right. Did he bring a few people back there? I mean, it sounds like if you found handcuffs and shell cases, he had some people, uh, you know, restrained, you know, interrogating him, you know, his style and then whacking him. Did you ever, is that possibly a location where he uh, did a few folks? Well, we never, as they say, discovered any bodies. Now, the, there were a couple of people down in Florida that we had a pretty good location on that uh, he supposedly took to, uh, that he took them to. But again, when we went down there, we were, we didn't have enough information to pinpoint it. So, so even though that was part of the indictment, uh, uh, you know, we never really came up with any, you know, skull and bones, as they say. No, I was going to say he may have maybe killed somebody there, but took the body somewhere else to dispose of them. Cause it sounds like you got shell casings, you know, either he's doing target practice. Why do it inside a coal mine? Or he's, you know, putting a few rounds into somebody he doesn't like. Yeah. And we had, uh, it, you know, I mean, we had not just stories, but corroborated stories. You know, there was one guy who owed him money, and he met him at a Morgantown uh, hotel and, uh, you know, put a gun in his mouth and, and cocked it and, and told him, you know, that he better pay up, pulled the trigger, and the bullet went through the guy's cheek uh, and out. And, I mean, we interviewed that guy, and he said, yep, that's what happened. So, so we knew that, you know, the capability was there. Uh, and especially, you know, with all the drugs involved and, and all the, all the other people that, that 
were surrounding him, uh, you know, they were just bad people, just bad people. Well, you know, in a coal mine situation too, especially a strip mine like that, there's so much heavy equipment up there. There's so many slack piles, which is the the crap that you peel off the coal that's not going to be sellable. I mean, there was probably a million different places you could hide bodies up there. It'd be virtually impossible to find them. Yeah. Yeah, because that that was both what's called strip mine, which is, you know, where they take the dirt away and then right there's a coal and in a deep mine where that you actually go down in a hole they were both there and uh and, and we probably you know with today's equipment and technology and stuff uh we probably could have looked a lot harder but uh you know i mean we did what Just we could at that time well there's yeah. only so many people so much time so much money you know you, you can't look forever uh, you know you've got to follow your evidence hey let's before we let me ask you a couple things, though. Let's go back to the three cops that you got arrested. Who got to go arrest those guys? Did 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 somebody at least have the pleasure of perp walking them right out of the station, handcuffed, stripping off their badge and their gun? I mean, how did you take these guys down? Yeah, one one of the people was actually on duty at the time, uh, and and I think they actually went up while he was on. They called him in off patrol. He went in. And, uh, and that's what they did. They handcuffed him right then. Of course, the word spread pretty fast. The others called in. Uh, we actually had like five people call in and say, you know, hey, are you looking for me? Is there an indictment for me? Well, we only had indictments well, for two of them. Well, now we've got three digits. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, we weren't looking at you, but we are now. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's one of those, uh, well, we'd like to sit down and talk to you. And we think you know what it's about. And, you know, then you go, you sit down. We did that actually in a couple of cases we had, and you get some really good information at that point. So, but, but, uh, the, yeah, the one they walked out, the other two just they gave up their attorneys called in and said, you know, look at this time, we're going to surrender them. And which we did because, you know, cops, cops got guns and, you know, uh, things are different inside uh, more for a cop than just a regular person. So there's more to, of an incentive not to go. So if they were going to turn, you don't get into general population as a cop. They put you in isolation. I mean, you you it's a you talk about being in a solitary confinement. Uh, that's that's what happens to a lot of cops that go to prison. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. So, but yeah, they all did time. Everybody did time. Well, let's talk about the big guy though, Carl Lee. Um, were you there for the day of sentencing? I mean, how much? How far did you? Were you able to? When is the first time? No, actually, let me back up. When is the first time you got to go introduce yourself to Carl Lee and say? You should have listened to your, you know, should have listened to your inner voice. It was me, pal. It's kind of interesting because that's almost the way it happened. They had him in a cell at the courthouse in Clarksburg upstairs in a cell by himself. And uh, and so I went walking in and, and uh, actually I went walked in with one of the my other troopers. And and so he looks up and I'm sure he's thinking in his mind, OK, you know, is he being arrested or so, you know, then I did the, the thing of reach my back pocket and take out my ID and I'm, I introduced myself into him and he goes, yeah, I knew who you were. And, uh, yeah, and I'm a dumb you probably have to, yeah, <laughs> you, you probably have to bleep this out. But my no. exact reply was well, that makes you pretty fucking smart then, doesn't it? So he just put his head down and, and, uh, he ended up pleading guilty to, uh, uh, I think Rico. He did 30 years on that. Uh, they took the others and kind of combined them with uh, the other things that he had. Uh, you know, the guidelines were, were out of sight. The federal guidelines, uh, sentencing guidelines were out of sight. So so uh, I, I believe he might be out now, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, that's uh, a someone, shame. Hey, someone what, was your, me. what was your UC name? Well, which one? 
the one you use for this operation? Oh, uh, I, I think on that one, uh, Tommy Klein. You, you know, that's one of the things I learned. In- no, you're about to you're about to say that. That's go ahead. I think you're saying exactly what I was thinking. Why you use the name Tommy? Yeah, that's one of the things that they that they taught me in. Uh, the guys that taught me before I went to educational and said, uh, you know, use your first, uh, the initial of your first name and the initial of your last name and, uh, you know, use that for name. And then I had, uh, I went to the DEA training and things and they told me there to, uh, not to get it too close to your name, because then if someone's trying to remember your name and you say something that's close to it, they say, no, that's not it. But you know, Tom Kirk, that's it. Now all, all my undercover guys knew me, you know, all the guys I work with, everybody called me Tommy back in those days. No one called me Tom or anything else. So, so, you know, I just went by Tommy back in those days. But, uh, when I taught narcotics, I used to teach, uh, here's what you do for an undercover name. Uh, if, if you want to remember, is you take a kid in high school that you hated, that was either a bully to you or stole your girlfriend or something, use their <laughs> name. Because then if it comes back on you, it come back on them, not come back on you. I was told that I had to quit teaching that, so I quit teaching it. Yeah, Because you're going to open up the paper one day and go, oh, look, that bully in high school got kidnapped, you know, tied up, thrown into a ditch somewhere. Huh? Sucks yeah. to be violated. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Stuff hey, happens, um, you know. So... <clears throat> What was the, by the time this case got all done, how many people ended up uh, getting indicted and getting, you know, taking pleas? How, how big was this case scope wise? Yeah, I, I think, like I said, there, there were at least three states that I can remember that were involved with it. Uh, as far as the amount of people, uh, I'd say maybe 50. And, and like I said, I don't think we went to trial on anyone. I found one news article said 46 indicted. Okay, well, there you go. I was closer than I thought. Good thing I didn't say two, 300, huh? <laughs> so, so, <laughs> but, testing but the important part was that uh, we got, you know, Gallo and a couple of the other uh, upper echelon people to plead like right off the bat. So if you were part of the lower echelon, it's kind of crazy for you to go to court if you were going to have you know, two bosses ahead of you coming in to testify against you. So, so that always helped us in, in, you know, in that, you know, we had, uh, I think Larry Minks and, and Jeff Sandy, two of the greatest guys that, that I, I've ever met, but I, I think they got kind of some kind of special award in DC because out of all the cases we had, they, we had a hundred percent conviction rate for like 10 years. Uh, and I mean, we pretty heavy hitters and a lot of people was just one or two indictments. There were a lot of people we took down, but we either had, uh, plea bargain agreements with them or, uh, we took them to trial and beat them, but we had a hundred percent conviction rate. So that was was fantastic. You, you want to hear the sad part about, uh, Mr. Gallo? What's that? It's not sad. It's not. It's not the kind of sad you're thinking of. So I just actually just pulled up something real quick. So um, the man wants to a term by the U.S. attorney to be the number one guy in a sweeping federal racketeering, drug, and tax evasion investigation. He only did twelve and a half years of his thirty-year sentence, and he got out on July nineteen ninety-six. But guess what? He was indicted on workers' comp fraud and everything else. So. 
Plus, he that was a violation of his parole. So he could he he's looking at right now, and I didn't pull up the last one, but uh, he may be facing another 17 years uh, besides the worker comp. He was indicted again at age 67. Uh, and this was actually back in 2007. I was just pulling this. It was updated in October 2017. But yeah, um, upon his arrest of more than 100 charges 23 years ago, Colabash uh, indicated at the time that the arrest involved the police pursuit in Nicholas County bond for Gallo was set at five million. So um, <laughs> this can you believe that thirty year sentence and he only does twelve and a half years? That's unusual in the federal system. He must have gotten yeah, some kind is. of. Uh, I mean, if he pled guilty, he got acceptance responsibility. He must have cooperated on some other things. Maybe a Rule Thirty Five thing. Did he? Uh, did he provide material assistance? Uh, very possible. Yeah, he must have. There's that because typically in the Fed system, you do eighty five percent of your time. Right. So guess what happened though? So as things karma, you know, is a bitch. So uh, he was indicted on a charge of wrongfully seeking workers' compensation. But guess what? He got stopped for driving. This is you know you know when you're on their radar and they're trying to figure out a way to revoke your parole and send you back. He was they're going to revoke him because he was caught for speeding, driving without insurance, and driving without a license. I mean, all not just oh, not major crimes of the century. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, hey, whatever it takes, brother. Whatever yeah. it takes to put this asshole back in jail. What, hey, I made a command decision. We're going to bring you back because to even get into the other story, it's going to take a lot more time. And I mean, we're already two hours into this. And what I want to do is we want to, we're going to park that story and we're going to talk about that. But I do want to talk about um, your rise through because here you go, <laughs> here you go from an animal house, 0.6 GPA. You go back through uh, community college, get a two-year degree in art of all things, but that's okay because it led you to a criminal justice degree. Um, you ended up going to law school. What possessed you to go to law school? And when did you do that? Uh, you know, w- at what point in your career did you go back to law school? Uh, it was in the mid eighties and, um, I, uh, I lost a bet, actually. Uh, I, I'm, I'm with this. Now, you were still working undercover at the time, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I worked undercover. In fact, the entire time I went to law school, I worked undercover, which I would not recommend to anybody because I was working organized crime at the time, and I'm, I'm working, uh, you know, a good 60, 70 hours a week and going to law school. Uh, my wife actually went to classes. I know I'm jumping around. Sorry about that. But... Uh, but if I couldn't make a class, if I'd be out on surveillance or something, I'd call my wife, who was living in Fairmont at the time, and I'd say, hey, I can't make today's class. She'd find a babysitter. She'd grab a tape recorder. She'd drive to my class and sit there and tape record the class and then meet oh, me out on the highway somewhere wow. and give it to me. And I'd sit in, in, on surveillance and listen to the class. And, and, and there's Whoa. no lie, when I graduated – more people knew her than knew me because she'd, she'd said, you know, they were coming up congratulating her for graduating law school. And she'd say, that's actually here, my husband, Tom. And they'd say, I don't know him. But yeah, you know, yeah. in fact, she at one class, she was even called on by the instructor who knew what was going on because he turned out to be a good family friend. But I told him, I said, look, I hope you don't mind. And he said, no, not I understand. Not at all. So he was asking a question one day, I think it was a property class or something, and he's asking a class and he's not getting anyone to respond. So he turns around, he says, why don't I ask you? He said, Mrs. Kirk, he said, and he asked her a question, she answers it for him. So, you know, a lot of people remember that. 
<laughs> that's fantastic. What, hey, Narco- a, what a what a catch in a million, man. What a hero that you married there. I got to ask cow. you, did you make her tape the recorder to her ankle with West Virginia crime scene no. tape? <laughs> <laughs> no, but you know, there was one instructor that didn't like you recording the class. So she kind of had to sneak it in and record it to do that. No, these, these were the the recorders that uh, when you press a button goes click on it and they're, they're about yeah. Yeah. twice the size of a law book and those type recorders and a microphone on a cord. Wow. Why, why were you so, uh, why law school? I mean, again, I mean, for the persistence working undercover, but why did you want to go to law school? Yeah. And what about this bet? Yeah. Well, when I was going to Bluefield state, uh, the, the guy that, that, was the main criminal uh, justice instructor down there. Like I said, he was a cop in Indiana somewhere. And, uh, and uh, you know, we had a lot to talk about after class. We'd sit around and talk about some stuff. So finally he said, he said, you know, he said, you bitch and complain a whole lot about the legal system and about how, you know, it's corrupt and it doesn't work. And he said, so he said, why don't you quit belly aching about it and do something about it? I said, how in the world can you do something about it? I said, you know, as a cop, I said, uh, you know, you get arrested, they, they hire an attorney for you. The prosecutor's an attorney. The judge is an attorney. If you appeal it, that goes before an attorney. If you go before the Supreme Court, they're all attorneys. I said, that's the only way you change the system is, is you have to be an attorney. He said, well, why don't you go to law school? Well, again, you're talking to someone start off with a 0.6 grade average. So, you know, I'm, I'm saying, yeah, right. And he said, no, seriously. He's and no one in state police had ever been to law school before. And we had one person that left state police and went to law school, but no one that had stayed in the state police went to law school. And I, and he said, look, you've got the grades. Uh, he said, uh, apply. And he said, I'll tell you what, I'll apply. He said, I'll give you the money for your application uh, to take the uh, uh, um, LSAT, law school admission test. And he said, if you don't get accepted, you don't owe me anything. But if you get accepted, he said, you have to pay me back. And so, you know, I, I thought, you know, what I have to lose. So I went ahead and took it and, you know, eventually got accepted into law school. So wow. that's, that's why I I'm went. pretty sure that guy, I'm pretty sure that guy was Gary Willis. So, I'm trying yeah, to find him, but it's been so long ago. I'm having a hard time here. Wow. So you lost a bet. Um, but so you were the so you were the first person in the West Virginia State Police to go to law school. Yeah, no. Since then, we've had a number of people. But yeah, but I mean, here you are. Here's a guy who would, refuses to write tickets. You know, um, would rather work UC, and now you're a lawyer. You must have been one popular guy. <laughs> yeah, actually, uh, you know, the, uh, here's what I did. I went to the superintendent of the state police at the time. I'm not going to mention his name. But uh, he's a retired FBI agent. And I said, look, I've got an opportunity to go to law school. But I said, I can't go to law school uh, without a job. I, I, you know, we're one family income. I've got a, a young son. I said, I, I, I can't do it without a salary. And I said, and he said, well, what are you proposing? And I said, how about letting me go to law school uh, on my off hours uh, you know, I'll go out and I'll work the interstate. I'll do whatever you need me to do. Uh, and don't worry about study time. I'll find study time on vacation, weekends, whatever I need to do. And so so he said, well, I don't know. I'll have to think about that. So I went ahead and went the first year. 
And so after the first year, I went back to them and I said, okay, I've done it for a year. Uh, you know, you see my activity sheets, you've seen what I've been able to do here, but I can't do that for another two years. Uh, just, I can't do it. I can't do that and work at the same time. And so he said, well, he said, I've thought about this and I think you're just a little too progressive for the state police, which floored me. You know? I mean, are you, are you not supposed <laughs> to be progressive? But, uh, so I, I quit, actually quit law school. That was like in 84. Well, I, I got to know one of the attorneys up there real well that literally wrote the book on criminal law in West Virginia. I mean, literally, everybody refers to Frank Cleckley's Rules on Evidence of Criminal Law. And uh, and I got to know him real well, really good guy. He was a defense attorney. I had a couple of cases against him, uh, and, and, and he treated me like gold. He really did. And so he called me up about a year after I left, and he said, look, we're starting – uh, it was two years later. He called me up and he said, we're starting a new program. It's a part-time program. We're only going to accept, accept a few people into it. And I think it'd be perfect for you. And he said, the only difference between this and a full-time program is we give you six years to complete the program instead of just three. Classes are the same. Everything else is the same. And I said, I, I don't know. So my wife actually said, look, go. And I said, there's no way the state police will leave me in place for six years uh, without something happening. And she said, well, then you've gained knowledge. What have you lost? So so I went back with the thought that eventually, you know, they're going to pull me out of this and whatever time I have, I have. Uh, but, you know, time kept dragging on. I, I'd take a couple additional classes. And, uh, oh, and the other thing he told me, he said, here's two problems. One is, since you've been out more than a year, that first year doesn't count. So you have to start all over again. Oh, and, yeah. And he said, the second is, is you have to get accepted again. He said, you have to start the process all over again. So that was the biggest reason I didn't want to go back, but, but I did. And, uh, and I, uh, you know, I went through that program and, uh, instead of, of six years, it took me four and a half years to get through. And I don't even know if they have that program any longer or not, but, yeah, I, I mean, I'm glad I have it, and it, it's really helped me. I mean, you know, I've been a special assistant U.S. attorney. I've been a, a state prosecutor. Uh, you know, I've been able to use it a lot, but I've really been able to use it in the state police because my main thought was uh, that if we had somebody that was a trooper and also an attorney, they could answer all these questions, uh, you know, about, you know, we could standardize warrants. We could uh, standardize a whole lot of things that we, at that time, we weren't doing. So, you know, that was the main drive probably behind all of it. You know, and there's there's a lot of uh, law enforcement professionals that will do that. They work the job and they get their college degree. But going to law school, I mean, that is extremely time consuming effort just in itself without having to worry about, you know, trying to earn an income and support a family. So, man, hats off to you for that. That's fantastic. Well, but I heard your wife about kicked you out of law school because you were sitting at the dinner table one night and said, we're going to have, you know, green beans and this and that. And you go, objection. Uh, I don't want green beans. <laughs> yeah, she kicked his butt. That's what she did. Yeah, that's what she's going to do. <laughs> hey, uh, but let, let's work up through your career a little bit. So while you were going to law school, um, you were still working undercover, but you said something about you were working. They looked at your activity sheet. Was that, were you in, did you go back in uniform or did you say you see the entire time? Because activity sheet, I mean, was that just for your regular investigative work? Yeah. Yeah. We still had to have, uh, you know, the, and it, you know, it's formed basically at that time it was formed basically for people that work the street or, you know, work 
patrol car. It wasn't really for people that worked in, you know, long-term investigations at all. Uh, but you, it didn't matter what it was you did. You had to fill one of these out and turn it in every week or every month. I forget how often we had to turn it in. But, yeah, we still had activity sheets that, that uh, I turned in the entire time. So what I'd have to put down is, is that, you know, I, I worked from from 6.30 a.m. to 10 o'clock. And then from 10 o'clock till noon, no activity because that's when I would be in class. Uh, and then from noon on, then, you know, I went back to my normal activity activity so it was a little complicated I, I wasn't a pleasant person i can tell you i was not a pleasant person what uh what happened to mr progressive there at the, the head of the state police oh he he ended up moving on i'm not uh he only stayed there like two years maybe three uh and uh then he you know he went on and i'm sure he i'm sure he didn't know that i eventually made superintendent <laughs> But you were too well, progressive. Moved on. Yeah, but too progressive. It's like this. Well, I mean, what was this FBI guy? He's still showing up in his uh, suit and tie, white starch shirt each day with J. Edgar Hoover, you know, picture on his back wall. Hey, I love my brothers and sisters in the FBI. So, <laughs> you know, what can I say? I know we do too. But Come it on, is, man, we, it we is all a, pick on the FBI. It is a requirement. Once an episode, we pick <laughs> and we dog the FBI. That's just a state law. So. No, we all do. We all we've all got friends that still work there. Uh, but let's talk about your career going through that. You said you used to be a corporal at one time. Did they promote you through the ranks while you were working undercover? In other words, you did you go from corporal to sergeant, you know, and on up like that while you were UC? Yeah, I, I actually made it up to uh, sergeant, up to first sergeant, and then uh, I got a call from our uh, superintendent at that time by the name of Jack Bucklew, and he called me up and he said, "Look." Uh, you've brought this up to me. A number of other people have. I think that we need to, to quit piecemealing this and we need to start an investigative branch of the state police and we need to get it in the state code. And so he picked me and two other guys, two other troopers to sit down and write out policy, procedure, promotions, everything you could think of, equipment you'd need, things like that. And we did that and and I named it the Bureau of Criminal Investigations. And so he took it, accepted it. And uh, then they, they had a, uh, uh, they brought some people in from other states and had a promotion board to pick the first commander of the newly formed BCI. And they, they picked me for that. So, so I started BCI as a captain. So I went from, uh, from first sergeant to captain and then from the, from uh, captain uh, stop to, right there. From, Stop right there. Okay. How did they introduce I'm you? I'm done. Back oh, up there. Uh, is that James what you've T. been getting to the entire yes, time? Yes, it is, man. Oh, I'm not letting yeah. you get out of this. Let's talk about your promotion to captain. Yeah, you know, uh, <laughs> you think things would die down after a while, but every time I entered the state police headquarters, uh, the whoever was working the desk would come across the PA system and say, like to announce the now the presence of captain kirk is now in the building and, and then you know you get you walk down the hallway and you you get the the whoosh, whoosh, you know the door opening and shutting and <laughs> beam me up scotty and I, I i people sent me some cartoons that they'd made of and you know i mean they were awful flattering they could have been a lot worse than what they were but but yeah captain kirk stayed there for years in fact some of the people i arrested some of my crew would tell them say you know, the worst thing in, in your world right now is the fact that you've just been arrested 
the best thing about it is you've been arrested by Captain Kirk. He said, you, you can tell everybody in jail that. So. <laughs> you know, but you, I'll tell you the other thing, too. You could have screwed with people and said, look, I'm going to I'm gonna dress you in red because you know what happens to everybody in red on a Star Trek episode, you know, when, when they yeah. hang around Kirk. They end yeah, up dying. They don't make it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, my. So, but you had a, but so you had quite the varied career there. So you made Captain. Captain Kirk, James T. By the way, here's a quick trivia question. What does the T in James T. Kirk stand for? Yeah, it, it's like Tobias no or I thought it was Tiberius. Thomas for a long time. But yeah, Tiberius. Very good. That's, That's what you said. Anyway, right, Thomas. James, yeah. Tiberius, Kirk. Yeah, anyway, so Captain Kirk, um, uh, Captain's on the bridge now. Now we will uh, talk about your ascent through that. So you were captain. How long did you stay captain before you moved up again? Uh, I was probably there for... Uh, two years, maybe three years. And, uh, and the governor at the time, uh, called me up. He had never met me before Had called me up and, and, uh, or he didn't personally call me, but he had the, uh, secretary of, of, uh, department of public safety call me and asked me to come in and, and said that during his second term that, that he decided to, uh, uh, go with another superintendent and that my name had been brought to him and he'd like to talk to me about it. So, so I sat down with uh, a guy named General Scaff, who was the adjutant general in charge of military affairs, public safety at the time and governor Gaston Cap uh, Caperton. And, uh, we had lunch at the, uh, at the, uh, uh, governor's mansion. Great short story about that at some point, but, uh, it's only the second time I'd been at the mansion. Well, this and, is the perfect uh, time for a short story about having lunch with the governor. Well, uh, when the governor, uh, took over, he took over from a guy named Arch Moore. Arch Moore was a governor that went to prison that our unit helped get the evidence to send him to prison. So, and, and the feds had been trying to get him for years. So when he left, uh, and the other governor got elected, Gaston Caperton. The first thing he did when he got to the mansion was he wanted uh, to make sure that there weren't any bugs or anything in the in the uh, mansion because he knew that Arch Moore probably had been bugged by every federal agency out there. So there were <laughs> only two guys in the state, a guy named Ray Moore. And myself, there were only two guys in the state that had been qualified on being able to detect and go out and debug a place. So he and I go there as the new governor's moving in. And I remember being up on the second floor and I've got a, uh, a wall plate off of a receptacle so I can look around inside there and make sure there's nothing connected in there. And so I'm down on my knees and I'm looking in and I hear these high hills pass me and I turn around and look. And there is this very attractive lady passing me and, and without, and it didn't mean to do it. Just one of those things that slips out. I went, Whoa, like that. So she looked down at me when I said it and I thought, Ooh, and she goes, well, thank you very much. <laughs> and so she walks out. So when she comes back, the other guy, uh, Ray Moore, he says, uh, Tom, I didn't know if you've had a chance to meet the first lady or not yet. <laughs> and, uh, so, <laughs> Well, yes, I did. Now, in my defense, she she was Miss West Virginia, and uh, she was a very, very attractive lady. So, in my defense, plus I was a cop. You got to remember that. So, you know, but so so this well, is at least the only she had a good sense of humor. 
So, yeah, she did. She she said, that was very flattering. Thank you, Trooper. And I said, yes, ma'am. Anytime. So, Trooper uh, Smith. Just remember the name's Trooper Smith. Yeah. <laughs> Trooper so, Progressive. So, so that was the second time that I'd ever been in the mansion. And, and we sat down and had lunch. And, and he said, well, you know, I'd like for you to think about it. I'll invite you. We have a couple other people we want to interview. So two days later, he brings me back and he says, uh, Tom, we've thought about it. We'd like for you to take over as Colonel of State Police. And I'd like to announce it tomorrow. And uh, he said, because our inauguration is on Saturday and this was on a Friday. And I said, he said, I, I kind of thought, and he said, well, do you have hesitation? And I said, Governor, only one. I, I said, I know you don't know me. I said, I'm as apolitical as anybody you ever meet. I said, I'm a registered independent. I've been one since 1972. And I, I said, I don't really know anything about politics or politicians other than about every three years, you round up as many as you can and you put them in federal prison. Because that's what we'd been doing. <laughs> well, after all the... Out of all the laughing in the room at that time, I realized I was the only one laughing, that General Scaff was not laughing and the governor was not laughing. And the the governor kept looking at me and he finally leaned over and he says, Tom, if you take this position, you worry about the state police and I'll worry about the politicians. And I said, yes, sir, absolutely. So so that's the next day he announced uh, that I was going to be superintendent. Shaved my beard off. First, my, my son, who's... Oh, I don't know, maybe 14, 15 at the time, had never seen me without a beard before. He laughed for two days. I mean, every time he looked at me, he laughed for two days. He goes, you're a kid. Look at you. You're a kid. But yeah, I remember inauguration day, it was like five degrees out and it was outside. And that's the coldest my face had been since I was in the winter survival school in the Navy. I mean, it was cold, cold, cold. But yeah. I just want to expand on that beard story just a little bit there, because uh, yeah, I believe you used to come home from working and not smelling too good, and and what was oh. the rules that your wife had, and what happened? Yeah, that's when I was riding with the bikers, and and you know we'd go on a run, and I mean you can't ask questions because you're kind of low on the totem pole, and so when they say hey mount up, you know you get on your Harley and you mount up, and so sometimes you know I'd say I'll see you tonight, and it'd be. Two weeks before I'd come home. Well, you know, in two weeks' time, you, you don't go stay at a motel. You don't go take showers or anything. So so when I'd come home, the first thing she'd say is, you take every piece of clothing you have off right now, and I'm going to either burn them or wash them separately, and you go take a shower <laughs> before you touch anything in my house. So, you know, I remember more than once we'd be sitting on, on the couch watching TV and and my beard's one of those beards that doesn't get long. It gets curly. So I could actually pull on it. The guys on the unit, they pull on it. You can pull and it gets longer and longer and longer. They call it Stretch Armstrong. They just keep pulling on it. And they let go and go right back into place. But she'd be sitting there and she'd go, I hear something. And I said, why? Well, I hear something. And what's it sound like? Oh, it sounds like a buzz. And it's, we track it down and I'd start pulling bugs out of my beard. Because, you know, you take a shower. You get most of them out. The dead ones come right out, but the live ones don't quite come out that quick. They're so hanging on it, for dear life. Oh. And there's a variety of them. I mean, I could tell you what part of the country I was in just by the bugs I'd pull out. But, yeah. That's hilarious. The sacrifices we make for the job, isn't it? The dream? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, for 800 bucks a month. I'm surprised she lets you stay in the house. Yeah. Hey, so, but a question for you, though. 
Because I, I remember on our state patrol, they, there were sometimes the governor would appoint people. You go, where the hell did he pull this out of? One time it was a sergeant that he made colonel. Um, but most of the time, in fact, when I was a trooper, when I got on, it was the first time the patrol had gone outside the patrol to bring somebody in from the outside. Um, and it was Burt Cantwell. I remember that he used to be the Wyandotte County Sheriff. He was a consummate good guy. I mean, love this guy. He was a consummate politician. My interview with him basically consisted of we were sitting there talking about all the hats on his shelf. And I didn't realize this. I was friends with the sheriff of Saline County, a guy named Al Nyes. And I used to go over there and hang out as a little rookie police officer. But when I wanted to join the patrol, he knew me. I didn't realize these two were politically connected. You know, so I had an in. I didn't realize that. So he's telling me about his pith helmets and everything. But I mean, just great guy. The reason I asked that for you is Bert was not really the trooper mold, you might say. So they had to specially make a uniform for him to kind of fit his little bit of a rotund uh, waistband. <laughs> so for you, the first time you're back in uniform, dude, were you were you trooper fit or were you more like, uh, I've been behind a desk for too long? Well, you know, I, I hadn't been, at that point, I hadn't been in uniform for uh, about- 18 years or something? Years. Yeah, right at 19 years. So my uniform had, you know, had rod dry rotted. So, so because I was colonel, you know, they fit you out with a brand new uniform. They did me right. I mean, it, they everything fit perfectly at that point because it, it was a brand new uniform. Now, were you still well, the same size you were when you got out of the academy? Well, sure. I'm the same <laughs> size I was when I went to the Navy. <laughs> I wish. I'll tell you what, having met, having met Tom a couple months ago in person, he is slim and fit. Well, thanks for lying. Uh, I appreciate that. But, uh, you know, especially, you know, you working undercover, especially you work with bikers and stuff, you drink a lot of beer. I mean, you drink a lot of beer and you don't, you don't drink Michelob light. I mean, you know, PBRs. you drink hard stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I, I packed on a few pounds. Well, we'll have to talk to you about that at a later thing, but let's talk about this. Let's kind of finish out your career here because I want to get up to what kind of what, what you're doing today. So how long did you remain colonel of the state police? Uh, right at four and a half years. And what, what years were you the, the colonel? Uh, I started in January of 93, and I, th I think it was 97 or 98 uh, that I left. And I went to a private law firm at that point. So did you leave because of a change in governor or was that about enough time for you? Well, both. Uh, I, I, before I took the position, I had one more year to go because I could add my military time. I had to go one more year before I'd actually vest in my retirement. So I figured I could last a year before I got fired. Uh, so, <laughs> so I went in there and, and I knew the governor, it was his second term. We have two term limit policy here in West Virginia. So I knew he'd be leaving. And, you know, it's customary when the governor leaves that when he comes in, he sets up his own people. And, and state police is always, you know, that's always a high profile position to take. So, so I knew I'd be leaving when the next governor came in anyway, but I had already vested in my retirement. So it kind of all worked out. Nice. So what kind of, at the, go ahead, Steve. At, at the same time that you were selected as a superintendent, you were also appointed as the first deputy secretary of what they now call the West Virginia Cabinet Department of Homeland Security, right? So right, the, correct. Your responsibilities are just mounting and mounting and mounting here. It's not as easy as just carrying a title. Uh, yeah, that's true. I, you know, in the, the second, the second time I came into state government is when it really got uh, complicated because 
Uh, I came in to form at that time, Governor uh, Joe Manchin, now U.S. Senator Joe Manchin, called me up and wanted me to start our intelligence unit, our fusion center. Uh, so I started that, and then when Jeff took over as uh, as uh, the uh, cabinet secretary, he asked me to come in as his deputy cabinet secretary. But then he also assigned me to be his chief general counsel. Oh yeah, and he also assigned me to be the governor's homeland security advisor, and eventually also the acting director of the emergency management department. So, <laughs> and did you also have to go out and get pizza on a regular basis too? On top, oh, of yeah, my I, gosh. I had to wash his car. I don't know. I do so many things. You know, <laughs> Jeff. You, you Jeff's do what just you said. Need Jeff, by the way. Jeff said you missed a few spots. He's going to bring it by later and just have you touch it up for him. So it's a, and he's not due till Saturday, so that bothers me. So <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and and I mean, there's other things in there. You you just briefly mentioned that you created the Western State Police Intelligence Exchange. These are these are things that we just take for granted now. And that guy that you know, Colonel Progressive there, that thought you were too progressive. Holy cow! Talk about being in the old age. These are the things that you need to change to keep up with the criminals. Because they're not old, you know, old school. They're they're changing with the technology and whatever's going. Holy cow! It's just ridiculous for that guy to do that. You know, at 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 that time, though, I mean, there were things I look back on now, and I say, you know, it's crazy because because we didn't have shift work. We worked from eight o'clock in the morning until whenever, and a lot of times it was midnight yep. to three or four. But you still had to be back at work at eight. We never got weekends off. Never got holidays off. Uh, and a lot of times you work six days. Uh, I don't think I ever had to work seven days other than like prison rights and stuff like that. But, but I remember, and you had to ask permission to go back to school. I didn't cause I knew they wouldn't grant it. So, so it's just one of the things I've done wrong in my life. I didn't ask permission. I just went, but we actually had a trooper, uh, that had hanging up in his office where he had requested to go back to school because he was going to school, got drafted, went to Nam came back, went to state police, and he wanted to finish up on his college career. So he asked to go back. And he got a very short letter back from the colonel, a different colonel at that time. But it just said that an educated trooper is not a dedicated trooper. Denied. And, <laughs> oh, and wow. Put that in a frame oh, and hung it on his wall. So different time. Jeez. It was a different time. I mean, oh, you couldn't yeah, own a man. house. If, if you bought a house, you instantly got transferred. Uh, a guy by the name, uh, a guy by the name of Carvel Ligursky. I know Steve, you've mentioned. Oh yeah, uh, Carl Ligursky. They got mad at him one day. He got transferred three times in one day. And three wow. days. He he went all the Who way. Who did he, he went piss all the way off? Uh, the he uh, the superintendent at that time, because uh, they were talking about starting a troopers uh, organization, not a union, just an organization. And he was part of the meeting, and they transferred him from Beckley to uh, uh, Charlestown, not Charleston, but Charlestown over in the eastern panhandle. When he got That's there, they me. told him that, that yeah, the, they told him that uh, he'd been transferred to Wheeling. So they said, don't shoot your stuff done, down. We just got a teletype here. You've been transferred to Wheeling. So he said, okay, got back in his cruiser. And before he got to Wheeling, they contacted him on the radio and told him that he'd been transferred to Parkersburg. So, you know, four four corners of the state. <laughs> that's the way they did things. 
Oh my God! Serve at the look, pleasure Hershey of the Colonel. Yeah, he was yep. at the State Police Academy when I went through the Basic Academy in '76, uh, early '76. Seventeen seventy-six, back when they were still qualifying with black powder musket loaders. You know, just good I, stuff, I mean, Murph. Let me tell you what, Ligursky wasn't somebody you screwed around with. <laughs> he That's had a reputation. <laughs> we had a couple guys like just, that too, yeah. He'd pick you up, snap you like a matchstick. Yep. So, hey, hey Tom, let's kind of finish out with um, kind of your career because, I mean, you were in private practice for a while, um, and and obviously somebody wants to get a hold of you, so uh, we'll make this quick. So. <laughs> um, but what kind of work did you do in private practice? Uh Defense work, <laughs> you know, which which my heart was not in, but I still did a good job. You know, this Frank Cleckley I told you about, he asked me one day, he said, what are you going to do when you graduate? And I said, well, I'll go back in the state police and he said, until I can retire. Sorry. And he said, but what are you going to do after that? And I said, well, I don't know. And he said, well, why don't you think about being a defense attorney? And I said, you know me. Why would you even bring that up? And he said, let me ask you one question. He said, do you think that everyone deserves fair representation? And I said, yeah, yeah, I have to say yeah on that. And he said, well, there you go. So, you know, when I started my law practice, I didn't have another, you know, I had my retirement, but I didn't have another job. So I basically took whoever walked through the door. I mean, somebody needed a will done. Yeah, I can do that. Somebody needed, just got caught with a trunk load of dope. Yeah, I can do that. You know, somebody wanted to do a patent. No, you can't do that. You have to have a special training be, to do patent work. So, so yeah, I, for a short period of time, I did about whatever they asked me to until I got a call from uh, the prosecutor uh, in the county where I was working. He said, are you tired of doing that stuff? And I said, yeah, I am. Because they were giving me a lot of, of – uh, I was representing uh, child advocacy a lot. I was representing the, the children in abuse cases and stuff. And, you know, it just, it gets to you after a while. And uh, so he said, he said, I'd like for you to come up here. He said, I have a disconnect between, especially the undercover officers, but police officers in general and the prosecutor and, or the, my uh, prosecutors. And he said, I need someone to bridge that gap that knows both those sides. He said, I'd like for you to come to work for me. So that's, that's when I left private, uh, private practice and went to the, uh, uh, prosecutor's office. Hey, what Tom, let me ask you, what was the biggest lesson you took away from doing the defense work that you brought into the prosecution? Cause I like what you said. Look, I, you know, look, cops may say that until they're the ones on the stand. Then they want to make sure they got a hell of a good defense attorney, you know, representing yeah. them. So it's, it can't be an exclusive thing just for cops. Right. So what was one of the biggest takeaways you got from doing your defense work that you brought forward with you into the prosecutor's office? You know, basically that, uh, that, Everyone deserves an attorney, but they they need someone knows what they're doing. I, I mean, you know, and I know you guys did, too, in your police work. There were people that you probably sent to prison that didn't need to go to prison. You know, they needed to, to cop some kind of plea or they needed to do something other than go to prison. And uh, and because the attorney they had, it didn't know what they were doing. Uh, they ended up saying, no, we can fight you in court. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. Uh and they ended up, you know, losing and going to prison. So, you know, the biggest thing is, you know, when someone wants, when I was a, both a, a special assistant U.S. attorney and a local prosecutor here, it was, 
you know, telling the judge, look, if you we've got a good case here. If you're going to sign them an attorney, sign them a good attorney, not just not just the next person on the list. You need to get them a good attorney because we've got a good case against this person. I don't want an appeal. And I want to make sure that, you know, that when they go behind those bars, that they're going to stay behind the bars. So, you know, they, they need a good attorney. And if we can strike a deal, fine. If not, then they need to go away for as long as we can put them away. I used to joke with a couple of the we had we had some guys too that were punched well above their weight, even though they were public defenders or doing, you know, a lot of indigent work. They were very good and, and they were always very I would say ethical about what they did. We had good relationships, but one of them, I used to joke, we were walking out of court one day. I got into maybe a little bit of trouble for this, but I walked up. I was on the stand. We just got done. Judge made his ruling. We bound him over for a preliminary hearing. And I walked up and there's a bunch of people around. I said, hey, congratulations. This is the 17th client in a row of yours that you've got successfully bound over for trial. We, that's <laughs> a record. We just want to thank you. for that. <laughs> Nobody thought that was as funny as I did. It's like your joke when you told it and the governor and the other guy just look at you going, yeah, what? Oh, whatever. Okay. Yeah. You take care of that. <laughs> yeah, well, whatever. Uh, it was funny. I thought it was funny at the time. Um, but what do you do now? So, I mean, you did yeah. a lot. Of, I mean, you have done a lot of stuff. Uh, yeah. It's almost like that indictment it would be easier to talk about the things you haven't done than the things you have. So <laughs> what do you do? What are you doing right now? Well, I, I'm doing some consulting work right now. Uh, I, I've also been qualified as a certified fraud examiner. Uh, so I'm doing some work with a, a company up out of Marietta called Perry and Associates, uh, their uh, uh, CPA firm. And so they do the, the book side of it. And, uh, and I do the investigative interviewing, follow the leads, look, see where the money goes side of it. And, and that, that's pretty interesting. So, you know, I, I'm doing some of that now. I've got a farm that, that takes up a lot of time. But, you know, as far as work goes, and, and I really like staying in work only because you know, there's a lot of things that's happened that I hate just to put, you know, in a desk drawer somewhere and shut the door. You know, I can't go around like Steve does and do public speaking. I'm not a very good public speaker and I don't have anything exciting. I don't have any books. I don't have anything like that. Well, wait, what so, a minute. You don't have anything <laughs> exciting. There we are. He was speeding, man. We brought the helicopter down and shut the door on his ass. Yeah. Blew, his, <laughs> blew his radiator right out of his car. Yeah. You know, so, and, um, but yeah, that that's. Uh, you know, I'm trying to help out a little bit there. Uh, so, you know, just things like that. Hey, Tom, nobody said in public speaking, you had to be good. <laughs> if that was a requirement, I mean, I wouldn't be up there. <laughs> hey, you, you're I, good. There's one thing I do. One thing I, I do want to point out is you were recognized with a special award last year in West Virginia. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, the, uh, West Virginia citizens award. Yes. Sir, the English West Virginia. How yeah, many awards have you gotten then that you can't remember? Well, you know, some of them I can't really talk about. You know, there are awards given to you by your friends and buddies that. that <laughs> oh, we want to hear about somebody indicted. Let's hear about this one first, and then we'll talk about the un, the classified <laughs> ones. So. Yeah, yeah, the uh, that, and I'm sure I'm sure Jeff was behind that because you know Jeff, like I said, he's a great guy. I, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have left the Intel Center to go to work for anybody probably but him. Uh, and you know, it was great being a, a deputy cabinet secretary because he, he has to take all of the BS and, and I can sit there and pat him on the back and saying, you know, suck it up, buttercup. And, uh, <laughs> doing good and, sucks and, to be you. I'm going back to work. Yeah. Now. 
Yeah, but he's he's I mean, he's a great, great person and, and a great friend, always has been a great friend. I don't think we were talking the other day. I don't think we've ever been in an argument. There's not a lot of people I can say that about, but I don't think he and I has ever argued about anything. I mean, he, he always takes me for what I tell him to do. So we don't argue over anything. So, But, but, but you uh, just skipped over why you got that award. Now, what's this yeah, award? Pal, come on, quit sandbagging <laughs> us. Let's get to it. It's just a, it's an award that the governor gives uh, if it's brought to his attention that, you know, someone's helped the state out. And I guess since I'd worked for the state for so many years, they figure, you know, within that 40 some years, he had to have done something good. So let's go <laughs> ahead and put you. his name on a piece of paper. So that's, Listen to you. That, yeah, it that's, was an honor to get that. It was an honor. Oh, absolutely. I, I didn't even know there was such an award, but I can't imagine a higher, higher uh, acclamation for what you've done than the, than the governor of the state presents you with something like that. Yeah. Oh, there is one good. higher award, and we're going to get it out of you. I want to know the awards your friends gave you, whether it was making Captain Kirk or being beamed aboard the bridge. Let's hear about one of the good awards you got from your friends. Yeah, maybe we'll talk about that next time, because I have to check on dates <laughs> as far as, you know, <laughs> statues of limitations, Statue, you know, statues things limitations, like that. That's right. <laughs> Well, unless it's like murder or something, I think by this time, most of these things have expired. I mean, unless you guys got a perpetual, you know, statute of limitations. Well, he, he has been working West with Virginia. Jeff. Yeah, yeah, that's true. You, in you West do? Virginia, well, there is say? no statute of limitations on felony. Any felony? So, yeah, any felony. It goes on forever and ever and ever. I didn't know that. Wow. Note to self, quit going to Charlestown. Yeah. Okay. Wow. <laughs> now, are oh. you going to Charleston or Charlestown, did you no, say? No, Charlestown, so up by Harper's Ferry. So we're in the north oh, okay. uh, west corner of Loudoun County. So we've been over to – actually, Charlestown was one of the places we, we thought about moving to. Um, mm-hmm. We've been looking at our final move, where we're going to go. So love Harper's Ferry area up there, right. Charlestown. Right. You know, they've got the it's races beautiful. and slots up there now. So it's uh, – you know, yep. the, that area is growing, and there's a – couple communities over there with new homes that look like really nice but uh yeah it's, it's just, nice but it's cold and they get snow so there's no reason to yeah, go there. look i'm from kansas yeah, man true. i'm used to cold and snow you that's know true. Yeah. but the other thing too murph would never let me live it down if i moved to by god west virginia so I, i'm gonna have to rethink <laughs> that maybe i'll just move up to the line and not over i'm not real sure we'd give you citizenship in west virginia morgan well you'd have to apply uh, you'd have if, to get permission if, you know that <laughs> Well, okay, guys. If I did, I would double the stakes <laughs> like you instantly by moving across the line. So there you go. You want to maybe, throw down? Maybe not the, not the IQ, but maybe the number of teeth. I don't, you might qualify for that. And I have two eyebrows, too. I don't know if you noticed that, too. So. <laughs> man, man. I just say that being from Kansas, man. Come on. And, and, and Tom, so, I mean, we're wrapping this up now. And I just want to say this, the story that everybody just heard from you is why we invited you to be on here. I'm, I'm honored. I'm proud to have you on here. I was, I was the same with Jeff. You guys are the first two West Virginians we've had on the podcast. I love it. Uh, there's so many heroic stories that come out of West Virginia, but you're such a humble guy, just like Jeff was. We were having to pull teeth with him as well, but that speaks to your credibility, your integrity, um, and having been, you know, went to high school and college in West Virginia. I'm not native West Virginia. I'm from originally from Tennessee, but I, I call West Virginia home. I am honestly proud to say thank you for everything you've done for our state, brother. It's it's wow, fantastic. Thanks. You set a you set a standard that others look to try to achieve. You, you're not a follower. You're a leader your whole career. And God bless you, man. Thanks for being on the show. Wow, thanks. It means a lot. Yeah. 
Well, don't cry. Don't cry or anything. Don't cry. Well, let me, the other thing too, let's just close out too with the dedication here again. This, we're going to dedicate this episode to Patrolman Robert Lee Kirk, age 32, tour 10 years, badge number 18, end of watch, Friday, August 8th, 1958. Never forget. And until Valhalla, brother, we will all meet again at the great beer hall in the sky. So, and we'll tip a beer when we do. So, Hey, but Tom, I can't tell you how much this is. This was so much fun. Again, like Steve said, you're a humble guy. Don't go anywhere. Don't hang up because we have a couple things to talk to you about when this is over. But for everybody else, thanks once again for playing the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all, the game of crimes. Everybody stay tuned for the debrief. I told you he was a sandbagger, flying classified operations into Cambodia, dropping Navy SEALs in there um, to go blow up sensitive stuff on aircraft. Um, obviously, they didn't find survivors coming back, you know, working his way up. But I tell you, the I tell you, I was just dying laughing when they were using, when they were arresting, when they're arresting the bad guy, the biggest, baddest dude in West Virginia, and they've got the helicopter out there and they blow that guy back into his car and close his door with the helicopter skids. And the guy says, what's going on? He was speeding. Yeah. <laughs> and involved a shotgun as well. So, um, I mean, just, you talk about, you know, everybody says, I should write a book. I should write a book. Tom should write a book. His, his, his life it's it's larger than life, you know. It's uh, I, I'm just so impressed um, with him coming on the show. Just met him at a conference, you know. Open, humble personality. Love the guy to death here. Hope to get to meet him again sometime. But thank you and and Jeff Sandy so much for being on the show because it's it makes me proud to bring on some fellow West Virginians here. Uh, when we say hillbilly, it's it's a pride. It's a statement of pride. So um, you know, to all my fellow West Virginians. <laughs> it's good to be a hillbilly. Everybody else is jealous. How about them ears? Huh? How about them ears? That's right. <laughs> Can't spell mountaineer, so we just shorten it to ears. Uh, oh, that hey. was your joke, not mine. Don't get that's, mad at me, folks. That's not a joke. It's the truth. <laughs> that's the saying. How about you'll see it on t-shirts? How about them ears? How about them ears? Hey, well, guys, well, we want to thank you once again. I tell you, we got some great stuff coming up too. We don't want to give it away, but we got we got made members of crime families. We've got NYPD guys who work some big cases. We've got um, FBI guys who work some big organized crime cases. We got good stuff coming up and this is just the tip of the iceberg. So we're just getting started for our next 50 episodes. But again, folks, we want to thank you. And uh, so, but the way you help us out, just head on over to Apple and Spotify, hit those five stars. It's magic. It's like Disney, you know, Magic Kingdom. We don't know how it works. It just does. Also head on over to GameOfCrimesPodcast.com for more info about the show. We post stuff there all the time. And in fact, with one of our guests coming up, he's got six books out, six books that wow. we'll be posting up on there. Uh, and we'll be adding our merch, you know, anything else that we're doing. Follow us on the social media at Game of Crimes on Twitter, Game of Crimes podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. And by the way, uh, for Sandy, just make sure you go search Game of Crimes fans, answer a couple questions. You know, it's not that tough. If Murph can get in, you can get in. Darn right. Darn right. Nine grade point average. That's right. But D is for diploma, Murph. Uh, <laughs> PayPal.com. Just use our email, Game of Crimes Podcast at gmail.com or PayPal.me slash Game of Crimes, whatever it makes it easier for you. And by the way, where do you got to be? Where you got to be? Where you got to be? I'll ask you one more time, Murph, where you got to be? Come on over to Patreon and join us there because you're, you're going to hear things that you're not going to hear on our regular podcast here on Game of Crimes. There's a lot of things we get a little more opinionated over there. We talk about a lot more topics 
Um, we have the, I mean, the one that we have, you can't make this shit up. It's amazing. Not only do you, are we coming up with stories, but our listeners are coming up with stories. They're just unbelievable. I'll play us. All kinds of stuff. The, the, the Q and a we just did, uh, was fantastic. Lasted what an hour and 45 minutes. Uh, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah, Answer so come everything. on over and join us. Give us a try. If you don't like us, then cancel us. But just give us a try. Uh, nah, like don't it. use the C word. No C word. I told you. Never use the C word. I didn't um, say credit cards. It, 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 <laughs> just, just throw that in there and come join us, by the way, too. We just dropped. It's July 11th when this episode comes out of 2022. If you're listening to it in the future, doesn't matter. This is when this episode drops today because we just released on July 10th. The Real DA Narcos, talking about the Real DA Narcos, Cali Edition, 16 hours, spread out over 15 episodes. Our 15th episode, the finality, we go two hours, we cover everything. Chris Feistel, Dave Mitchell, the guys that followed Murph and JP after uh, Pablo, they brought down the Cali cartel. I'm telling you, it's stuff you have never heard anywhere else, and you have to stick around for episode 12 when you find out the real story behind Chris's good looks. Well, you know, and, and because of narcos, everything everybody thinks that Javier and I went through some dangerous situations, and we did. I'm not I'm not downplaying that at all. But what what Chris and Dave went through, along with uh, with Ruben Prieto and and Jerry Salome, two other agents down there working with them, it's unbelievable. I didn't even know some of the shit they were going through. It's it's you got to come and listen. This is something. And you're going to ask yourself, what the hell were you thinking when yeah. they talk about some of the? Even they say you lose shit or go, yeah, what the hell were we thinking? But the only way you're going to find it out, come join us Patreon.com/slash Game of Crimes. Well, hey guys, that brings us to an end. We hope you guys have enjoyed this. Uh, make sure you stay tuned. We enjoy everything that you guys do. Just leave those comments for us. Keep following us. And once again, we want to thank you for playing the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all, and. Most hillbilly friendly one. That's right. The Game of Crimes. Thanks, everybody. See you next time. <laughs>